I don't understand. <coughs> Excuse me. Mm-hmm. <coughs> I'll let it all this out. Oh my gosh. <clears throat> Welcome to Conversation on Tap, a new podcast that seeks to promote intelligent dialogue in an age of echo chambers and self-segregation. Pull up a stool, pour a glass of tasty beer, and join us each week as we discuss all the topics that you were told not to talk about in polite company. My name is Jose. And my name is Jose. Oh, look at that. Two Jose's. This week, we are going to be talking about a range of things from beer to union activities. Um, This week, unfortunately, we are missing Joel because he is um, experiencing a family um, emergency. Joel is unable to be with us um, today. So, Jose... Wait, should I say your last name? Well, you just did, so I guess it's all right. I can, I can edit it out. That's all right. <laughs> I've been upgraded. <laughs> I was originally contacted about being a guest on this show, and now I've been upgraded to substitute co-host. So it's pretty exciting. Pretty it exciting is. for me. I think you should be like just the regular stand-in. Oh, like the guy under the stairs in the old David Letterman. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> so if I'm out or Joel's out or whoever's out, you can just step in. Oh. I would love to be the permanent sub. I think that would be an awesome gig. <laughs> like a curriculum sub. Right. <laughs> exactly. Curriculum right. Sub. <laughs> All right. All the responsibilities, none of the benefits. None of the benefits. <laughs> so, Jose is here with us, but um, he actually is providing us this week with our with our brew. He's here. He's a he's a brew master. Yeah. So let's clear that up. <laughs> I started brewing beer right after Christmas. My wife bought me this uh, machine. It's called a Pico, Pico Brew, and it's a device that brews beer for you. You do the cleanup and things like that, but it's an amazing machine. And I've always wanted to brew beer, but I'm not a big fan of boiling pots and sterilizing things. It just is not my forte. So this machine was just like the godsend. I bought it for myself. (laughs) (laughs) With authorization from the wife as my Christmas present. As you do, yeah. So we're drinking the second batch that I've brewed Uh since having this. And this one is called um, Fire in the Hole. It's from the Red Army, uh, Red Army Burger, which is out of uh, North Carolina. And so the great thing about this beer is I don't know what it's supposed to taste like. (laughs) Even better. It's a mystery beer. So if it tastes good, we're just going to assume that's the way it is. And if it doesn't taste good, then we're just going to assume that's the way it is. (laughs) And no, and no part of this are we going to assume that it's your fault. <laughs> Very clearly, I'm glad Jose. I'm glad you're on board. So let's uh, you know, let's vent the keg. Let's see here. That sounds awesome. And let's pour it. So fire in the hole. It's a, uh, it's an Irish red. Ale and it's got an ABV of about four point five, so it's definitely not the high octane stuff Jose and Joel are used to drinking. Yeah, that lizard's mouth was nine percent, but it should have a nice frothy head. It's got a rich red color, Ooh. and we're just kind of pouring right out of this little mini five liter keg that it's brewed in. So I'm pretty darn excited about this. You know, pouring out of these little kegs is its own separate art form. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Because I seem to be doing much better with my glass than I did with yours. <laughs> you learn as you go. <laughs> well, I'll say this too: it's a really cool looking keg. It, it's it's tiny. It looks like a big keg, but it's a it's a, it's a miniature form. And I got to tell you, when you brew with these folks with the Pico, they actually send you this this keg sticker that has the logo of the company that you brew from, oh, cool. information about what you've brewed. So it's actually looks pretty legit. It does. Yeah, yeah. All right. All right. So let's yeah. see. Let me know. Good or bad? It's the way it's supposed to be. Cheers to your health. I like that, actually. What do you think? 
That is not horrible. <laughs> of all the things, that is not It's horrible. almost got like a, a caramely aftertaste to it, right? Which I like about reds. It has that little after, not, not a, a grapefruit like an IPA is. And it right. definitely has a nice aroma. It's got a nice rich head on it, you know, for not being a nitro beer. Right. I'm, it's mostly clear. It, yeah. <laughs> it looks really Would good. Would you say mostly, Jose? <laughs> it really is. And I like that I get a little uh, beer mustache afterward. <laughs> <laughs> yep, that's free. No charge for the beer mustache. Exactly. It comes with, comes with the beer. <laughs> free charge. Drink a beer. So now's the part of our show that we call Fred Talks. In this part of our show, Jose and I will each share one thing that we are passionate about for two minutes, though we tend to be a bit loquacious, so that isn't a strict time limit. I think since Jose is our guest, we should allow him to go first. Oh, beauty before age. I love that. That's right. Okay. (laughs) All right. So I've been thinking about this quite a bit, so... Something that really gets me going, and, and, and I, I, I joke about it pretty regularly, but really it's, it's an issue for me, is global warming deniers. Oh, yes. Climate change deniers. Like, I don't get it, right? How, how can there be billions of us on this planet and, and not be obvious that we impact it in, mm-hmm. in one way or another? And so I always think about this concept of the, like the, the global footprint, right? Yeah. I always thought that was a weird analogy, but it actually makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. So. If you think about walking through the forest, everywhere I step, I'm creating something different than what was there before. Exactly. By my footprint, right? Mm-hmm. So if there's a line of ants crossing through the forest, and yeah. I step in their path, and I break their chain, and these little guys are just storing up nuts for the winter or whatever right. ants eat. And you've killed hundreds of them. And I step on that. I essentially break their supply chain, right? right? Their stream of, of, of collective consciousness, right? which may in turn mean that those ants are less prepared, mm-hmm. which means more of them will die over the winter, which means there'll be less of them come the spring. And whatever yeah. animal feeds off of that, mm-hmm. right, there'll be less food for them to consume. And so less of that animal will live and whatever that animal is the prey of right, right. and it go down, down the chain. And so I could set off a chain of events that would lead to the degradation of an entire ecosystem mm-hmm. simply because of my actual physical footprint. Exactly. Right? Yeah. If I don't return to that footprint, then over a period of time, that ecosystem will come back to stasis. It'll you know come back to its norm. It'll fill back in the footprint. The erosion will fill back in. But if I continue to step in the same spot over and over and over, mm-hmm. I have for generations impacted that ecosystem. Mm-hmm. And that's just one footstep. Right. So imagine all the things we do to the planet. We build runways that jut out into the oceans. That affects you know, uh, um, uh, the seas and, and the, 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 the currents and stuff and down the river, right. uh, um, upstream from that or up, up coast from that. We divert rivers. We build dams. Mm-hmm. We pollute the air. We pave over places that used to not be that. And so, and I get why we do it, because we're humans and humans rule. Right. We totally get that. We're awesome. Don't want any, any uh, don't believe me. I'm not a, like a, <laughs> you know, humans. I'm not a, like a, like a leopardism that they should be the ones to, to exactly. rule the earth. It should be the humans. <laughs> right. Exactly. But everything we do has an impact. Mm-hmm. Some of those are temporary, but some of them are much less temporary and we have to be aware of that. And so anyway, climate change, that people who deny it or like believe that we don't do anything to the earth, I, 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 I don't get it. I don't get it. No. 
I mean, if you literally have your head buried in the sand, you have created a footprint. <laughs> Filled with your head. Where is, right? <laughs> so that that's, that was my little my thing, and I will talk anybody to the ground about that because I, I just don't get, you know how how anybody denies that as a reality. Global warming is not just about things getting warmer, right? It's it's symbiotic. When something gets warmer someplace, mm-hmm. right? Something someplace else, it's cooling off, right? Uh, to a more extreme than it normally would, and and global warming isn't just about warmth, right? We know it's about rain, it's about hurricanes, it's about snow levels. It's mm-hmm. about the length in which things occur that Definitely. you know in that they hadn't in the past. And you know, we had these these horrendous fires here mm-hmm. in Southern California and then up in Northern California. Uh, after you know a series of, of, of months and months that were drought which came right after some of the heaviest rain we've had in a long time. And so it's just I just don't and those it. were followed with mudslides. In the yeah. So I mean it's it's very real. Yes, I, yes. I don't understand. I agree. I totally agree. I don't understand how someone could look at all the devastation that we're causing directly to the planet and say yeah. eh, it's not real. Yeah, and just just fess up to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We, talk, we talk to our students, don't we? You know what? It's going to be all better if you just tell the truth, and then we can solve the problem. Exactly. Right? <laughs> just tell me the truth. Um, but we can't even have a conversation about how to solve something mm-hmm. if we don't even agree that there's a problem. This kind of goes back to the conversation you had in a previous podcast about right to life stuff. So if I'm yeah. consistent mm-hmm. with my thought process that you know God creates life, and, and, and so anything that's contrary to that is mm-hmm. inconsistent with the teachings and with what God wants us to do, then it's the same thing with global warming, right? Totally. Then I, I can't ignore that the, some of the things that I do make a difference. And if one thing that I do makes a difference, then something that we do collectively must make a huge difference, right? Exactly. But if God wants us to leave it alone, then we should just be naked in the woods eating berries and nuts and just <laughs> dying at the age of 15 or 17, right? Definitely. But we're not doing that. We're not. As we sit in this room with an iPad. So, <laughs> um, so yeah, I, I would encourage people to go out and read Pope Francis's Laudato Si, which has been called the Pope's um, climate change or global warming encyclical. For my Fred talk this this week, I'm going to talk a little bit about Lent. So this is kind of my weekly Catholic minute. But um, so what is Lent? I think a lot of people see Christians, they see Catholics practicing Lent, and they don't really understand what it is. But basically, Lent is 40 days of prayer and fasting, almsgiving. One way to put it is it's it's spiritual spring cleaning, right? Nice, I like that. You're clearing out the clutter of your of your heart, clearing out the clutter of your of your spirit. And preparing yourself for the coming of Christ in at Easter time, but it, this is this is a long history. I mean, Christians have been practicing this from the early days, going back to the um, going back to the two hundreds, when uh, Saint Irenaeus. I was I was looking this up. Saint Irenaeus wrote a letter to the Pope at the time, Pope Victor, and basically said, "There's some disagreement about how we should practice um, our preparation for Easter." You know, some some Christians are, you know, they're, take, they're taking a day. Other guys are taking, you know, a couple days. And there's this group of people who are taking 40, 24-hour days. And so over the next century or so, the church um, solidified over a 40-day preparation period for Lent. So we're talking about, you know, easily 1,700 years that Christians have been doing this. Mm-hmm. This isn't just some flash in the pan, some new thing. We've been doing this for a long time. But, um Really, it's 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 modeled after Christ's forty days in the desert, in preparation mm-hmm. for his ministry, and it also kind of brings to mind um, Moses's forty days on Mount Sinai, when he was preparing to receive the Ten Commandments from God. Um, so I'm, I'm, you know, 
I'm Catholic. Jose's Catholic. Turns out I'm Catholic also, yes, right. <laughs> as well. So for Lent, you know, every year it seems like we're asked, what are you giving up? What are you giving up? And this year I'm actually going to be doing both, I guess. I'm going to take up increased prayer. I'm going to be doing a daily devotional. Um, nice. Bishop Barron, who's the bishop of the Santa Barbara region, um, is putting out a Lent reflection of Lenten uh, daily devotional. Mm-hmm. You can buy a book or you can do it through your email. I'm doing it through my email. Sure. Um, so every morning I will pray and read along in the Gospels and be uh, following along with what Bishop Barron sends out. Um, I'm also going to be fasting one day a week. So on Fridays I'll try to do the fish fry if possible, but I'm thinking maybe Wednesdays I'll fast. But I think a fast <laughs> isn't, doesn't mean you don't eat at all. Yeah, are you going to do like the Catholic fast? The Catholic the, fast. Okay. So it's like... A regular meal and then like a small one, yes. I think. And the two small ones cannot equal or be more than the regular, the regular meal. It's got to be less. And no snacks in between. No snacking. So it's going to be terrible. Because <laughs> <laughs> I like to eat. So that's that's the less of the... Um, and the third thing I'm going to do is I'm going to do um, a little letter of gratitude to people. Oh. One, one, one every day. So oh, I'll send it to 40 really cool. people I by like the end of Lent. Right. So growing up Catholic, right, cradle Catholic, mm-hmm. um, we were just taught to give something up. Yeah. Like Lent was about giving something up. Mm-hmm. And and the joke is always, then you just pick it right back up 40 days from now. Right? Exactly. So I give up chocolate, but it's really just a temporary thing. right? The other 325 days of the year, I'm be eating. Right. I'll make up for those 40 days plus some, right? And it wasn't really until I was an adult, you know, well into adulthood, when the idea of doing something for Lent right. became a concept. I'm like, oh my gosh, that's like a choice. I can actually add something, but mm-hmm. hopefully the intent is that it becomes part of who you are, right? Your, your right. regular way of, of interacting with the world. So I like the things you're doing, and I hope that you, you consider, maybe not as to the excess of daily, but right. you know, incorporating that into into just kind of how you function, maybe a, mm-hmm. you know, a weekly you know, note or something like that as opposed to every day. Every day. Uh, and I have until uh, Wednesday to figure it out. So oh, you've been decided? I to, no, yeah. I, I'm, I, I like to take all the time that's given to me. Okay, it's so allotted. I posted I, technically, in my head, I have until I actually go to um, Ask Wednesday <laughs> service. So. <laughs> okay, so that's funny that you mentioned that because I'm going to be pulling myself up out of bed at... Five o'clock in the morning to get ready, so I can go to the six thirty mass. Oh, six thirty. God bless you. Well, because <laughs> after I'll be going to work. Yeah. You know, after work, I might pop into a school board meeting for a bit. Oh man. And then my wife will get off work, mm-hmm. and then I'm going to take her out for Valentine's. Okay. Okay. We're going to have sushi, so I'm thinking. <laughs> I'm good because it's fish, right? <laughs> it so, is. Yes, you're right. Fish. So you 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 have your fast is okay. there, and you're gonna have your two light meals through the day. Okay. Yeah. You know, now, now that you put it into that context, I, I may be looking at a six thirty mass too, which does not, it's not consistent with how I'm drawn. Yeah. yeah. But you know, <laughs> <laughs> that may be where I'm going. Well, yeah, maybe I'll see. Maybe I'll see you at the six thirty mass then. <laughs> yeah, you know, getting to work early is not a bad thing. No, that's that's true. So in this next segment, our conversation will focus on several topics. We're going to look at beer making. We're going to look at um, the work of the unions, including the Janus um, case as before the Supreme Court. So let's go ahead and begin with um, beer making. I don't know anything about beer making. I've always been kind of curious about the process because it seems really intricate. Mm-hmm. But um, 
you've been taking it up. Joel is a huge beer maker. Oh. Well, well, tell me about your well, experience. Well, you know, traditional beer making is, is t- home brewing mm-hmm. is a tedious process, right? It requires lots of different kinds of containers and transfer units and things like that. A lot of measuring, a lot of boiling, sterilizing. Uh, you know, beer is very susceptible to, to its environment, right? So if mm-hmm. you introduce any kind of contaminant, it could ruin a, to- a whole batch. So that part never excited me. But the idea of being able to brew beers at home and drink different things, I, I like that. Right. right, I like that a lot. Um, and so when I first found out about the Pico Brewing Company mm-hmm. and their machine, it seemed like a really neat idea, but it was just super expensive. So lo and behold, over a few iterations, they come out with the Pico C, which is the machine that I have. Mm-hmm. And it, to me, it's the it's the Best of both worlds. It's the home brewing. Right. Uh, so it gives me that kind of interaction with what I'm doing. I feel like I'm really accomplishing something. When beer is brewing in the house, the whole house just has that great smell to it. But it doesn't have all of the downfalls of, you know, under-sterilizing or under-cleaning or True. measuring, over-measuring, under-measuring. Um, the machine does all the sterilizing and cleaning for you. Essentially, you're just swapping out waters and some cleaners, but it does the work. And so when you're ready to brew, the machine is completely clean. Mm-hmm. And it keeps it clean throughout the entire process. So it's a closed system when it's brewing, oh, which cool. is awesome. The other thing I like about it is they have their own packs. And this is a horrible analogy, but it's like a giant K-cut. It's pre-packaged um, yeah. barley and hops and, and all the different elements you need to brew beer in a couple of different packages. And those go into the machine and the machine filters the, the boiling water, the steam water through all that, right? Mm-hmm. So what the company has done is they've gone out to all these microbrews, right? So Joel and you were talking about this, how just this oh, yeah. explosion of microbreweries, right? We love it. So what I can do now is go to the Pico website, and they contract with microbrews all across the country and even other countries. Oh, wow. And those folks give their recipes to Pico. Mm-hmm. And then Pico creates the packs. And then I buy the packs from Pico to go into my machine. Mm-hmm. So I can go to their website and choose from hundreds of different beers around the country, depending mm-hmm. on what I like, what I'm interested in, things from other places, Brazil and Italy and all these other countries. That's so cool. And, um, and then brew at home, mm-hmm. right? Beers that don't get bottled, that aren't mass-produced, that aren't distributed outside of their local community, I can drink right here in Santa Maria, California. That's and I'm crazy. brewing it myself. So you said it's like a K-cup. So how does that work? So it's like a container that you insert into... Yes, there's a big holding uh, uh, a container, like a clear holding container, uh-huh. that's part of the machine and kind of pops out of the machine. Uh, like a drawer almost, mm-hmm. and in there you insert these big, they call them uh, pico packs, right? And the pack is almost like a small shoe box and made out of um, compostable, compost, compostable? compostable compostable yeah. material, and <laughs> and it comes sealed, and you, you take the sealant off, and you put the compostable pack into the, the, the drawer, the clear drawer, mm-hmm. along with a separate compostable container that has the different hops and chambers, Oh, that's cool. And so once you pop it in, the machine scans the pack. Mm-hmm. It knows exactly what you're brewing. Wow. And it knows, uh, because it's all connected to the internet, the machine, and uh-huh. knows the elevation that I'm living in, that I'm at, so it'll adjust the brewing process based on the elevation, because right. that makes a difference, uh-huh. right? And you can tweak it a little bit. You can change, like, the um, the bitterness. You can adjust the alcohol content level. And like, like I said, the ABV of this we're drinking right now, the fire in the hole, mm-hmm. is 4.5. But I can crank it up a little bit mm-hmm. or down. And it just brews. It takes a couple hours to brew a batch. I didn't mess with any of the, the adjustments. It's the regular alcohol, the regular ABV that comes with it. I didn't change the bitterness because I, I want to see what the beer is like. Right. Uh, which, and then what's really also very cool is that I can go onto their website and I can create my own packs. I can put what I want into it. Oh. 
they'll package it up there, put it into their uh, proprietary packaging, packaging, and send it out to me. I can brew essentially my own beer based on things that I'm interested in from home. Yes, right. That is so, so cool. Yeah, it's, it's been really neat. I have this guy we're drinking right now. This is my second batch ever. Mm-hmm. Um, I've already drank the first one with, with a buddy. And I have another one that should be ready tomorrow. It's been really neat. It, I don't think I'm contaminating anything. I think things are going really well. Mm-hmm. Uh, the fermentation process occurs in the, the keg that you brew into. Yeah. Right? So it still stays self-contained. Once the fermentation process is over, I transfer it into the serving keg, which we're drinking out of right now. Right. And it actually carbonated in this keg. You know, it takes about twice as long to carbonate as it does to brew. But anyway, it's been it's been really neat. And again, not all the crazy cleanup. Right. And all the sterilizing and all the other nonsense. The mess. Right? The mess. Yeah, right? It's like buying a cupcake, not actually baking a cupcake. <laughs> exactly. Do you have to store this away in any way? Yeah, definitely it's susceptible to changes in temperature. Maybe that's what it has to do with it. And so that's a big deal. So I had to find a spot where the temperature is fairly consistent day or night so that Mm -hmm. as it ferments or as it it, um, uh, uh, carbonates that it's not all over the place. And I I have actually a spot under the sink. Uh, in my bar area of my home, right, right. and uh, it's pretty consistent there temperature-wise. It doesn't really fluctuate much, so it's a perfect place for these guys. And I already had a little mini underbar fridge here, mm-hmm. so I actually pulled a couple of shelves out of it, and now I'm using oh, that to store my little kegs in. That's awesome. Well, this beer is amazing. This is the Fire in the Hole, mm-hmm. which I love. Fire in the Hole by the Beer Army. <sighs> Better red than dead. Yeah, right? <laughs> <laughs> so Cheers good. to that. Cheers. Woo! Ooh. Nice. That is so good. Yeah, so this is great. And you could bottle it if you wanted to. There's a they, you can buy these one liter um, bottles with the uh, the ceramic, you know, reusable caps. Yeah, but I rather have the little keg. Yeah, but you couldn't really do like keg taps off this. Yes, you can. Right? <laughs> have you done it? So um, <laughs> I was telling you that I naturally carbonated this, which means I added the sugar to it, mm-hmm. right? And let the sugar and the yeast in there all, you know, release those carbonation gases. I could have force carbonated it. I actually have a little kit for that. So you just use CO2 cartridges, and, uh-huh. and it's, it's a valve that pops right in here. After about a day and a half or so, it force carbonates the whole thing. There's also a kit you could buy through third parties, and it's uh-huh. essentially a tap system for these little 5-liter really? kits. It goes right through the top, the same place that I would, I would put the force carbonation kit in, mm-hmm. straight through, and it straps on. And, you, again, another little CO2 cartridge, and it has a little pour spout, and you could actually draw it out that way. Really? Yeah. So instead of using the, the gravity spout at the bottom, which right. we're using, which we're using, you could actually put a little tap in there. That's funny. Yeah. Because I can just imagine, like, college kids with this, you know, <laughs> upside down, drinking it out of a... Well, you know... The worst things could happen to people. That's true. This is really delicious beer. I'm going to mm-hmm. have to look into this. And again, I'm assuming this is the way it's supposed to taste. Yeah, I'm assuming Con- it is. We don't have any you know, contrary information, so we're going to go with that. <laughs> yeah, no prior information. So <laughs> lead us otherwise. <laughs> and we're drinking out of our, yeah, our SMEA Association Pilsners. Or not Pilsners, but uh, uh, pint glasses. So it really kind of feels like it's the right thing to do. It is. I have two of these glasses, actually, in my freezer at home mm. so if i ever pour myself a beer i can pour it right into this cold smia glass yes nice smia santa maria elementary education association now the cool thing is not only are we drinking some delicious brew that jose made mm-hmm. we're drinking delicious brew out of a smia pint glass and to make it even more special we have jose the maker of the beer who is the smia President, yes, so I'm curious. Like, I'm on the executive board as well, which Mm -hmm. I think I mentioned in the last podcast. 
but I'm a secretary. <laughs> and I feel like that's mm-hmm. my that's my ceiling. I don't want any more responsibility. <laughs> so what was your journey? Because I know at some point you were probably a rep. Yes. And you ended up on the so what was your journey? Just tell me a little well, bit about it. Here's that. the thing, right? Either you put up or you shut up. Yeah. <laughs> and kind of the way I was raised, it's kind of it's just the way I am. And public education really is more than just being in the classroom. It's it's a living, breathing thing. It mm-hmm. really is. And so, you know, we're in our classroom with our students every day. And you, junior high teacher, you have multiple groups of students throughout the day. But And, and that's your focus. That's yeah. like the most important thing in the world in that time frame because that's, that, that's what you're there for, right? Exactly. And, and, and you're trying to do good things in a good way, right? Right. To move these folks, these young people forward. But after the last bell rings, you're still a public school teacher. Right. And there are forces outside of you that push in on the work you do. Mm-hmm. Whether it's the curriculum you teach or it's the programs you're supposed to use or it's when the bells go off in the day, uh, the, the length of your work day. I mean, all that stuff is really being pushed onto you from the outside. And my belief has always been if, if, I want to be a part of that mechanism that helps to make working conditions better for folks. And I need to get myself involved. Mm-hmm. And so my second year as a teacher, I became a site rep um, and just kind of worked my way from there. Went to a few conferences to get an idea of what it meant to be in union. I'd never been mm-hmm. in a union before. Uh, and, and what are my rights? What are my responsibilities? And just kind of worked my way through that. Eventually became treasurer mm-hmm. of the board, uh, of the executive board. Did that for a few years. Really loved that. And when the past president decided to step down and retire, mm-hmm. and I thought, you know, I, I can do this. I, I think I have something to offer. And stepped up and was elected. This is my third term I'm, I'm, I'm in right now. And I love it. I love serving. Mm-hmm. And that is, I think, my purpose, not just to students and children or families, but to my peers. And if I can make things better for my students in my classroom, that's awesome. That's amazing. That's my job. Somebody's paying me to do that, and I enjoy doing it. But then when I leave my classroom, I have another opportunity to serve, and mm-hmm. that's the, my fellow educators within my community. And that's a great feeling. That, that's exactly how I look at it. So for me, growing up, my grandfather was um, a truck driver. Mm-hmm. He was in the Teamsters, and he had the Teamsters handbook memorized. And he was a rep. Mm-hmm. And he would often go down to L.A. to represent members or what have you. I'm not sure of all the details, but he was big into unions, big mm-hmm. into the Teamsters. But what's interesting is they they passed that on to me. My grandparents were very blue-collar people, but they passed on to me the idea that unions are important mm-hmm. and that if I'm going to be in um, an industry where there are unions, then it's my responsibility, it's my obligation to participate. And if there's a yep. vacuum in some way, then it's my duty to step in. And that's kind of how I felt. So um, I started mid-year as a teacher. And so that second half of that year, I wasn't a rep. But beginning the next year, I was a rep. Right on. Good. And I've served as a rep until, well, beginning of this year when I was elected mm-hmm. as the secretary. Um, and I feel like it it's my duty it, it, yeah. to serve my students when I'm in the classroom and, as you said, to serve you know, our teachers. Our members are super fortunate to have you, too, that you've stepped oh. up. I mean, you've just been a, just an asset to our, to our association, not just as an executive board member, but you're also helping with the organizing. You're doing things that that other people just don't have the time or the energy or the inclination to do. And so you have just really been an amazing addition to our executive board. And someday, you know, I'm going to move on and do other things. And I'm hoping that you and folks like you step up and, you know, take the reins of the association and 
really focus on students and teachers and their relationship and how do those relationships impact the district that we, that we work in and, and what can we do to make things better for everybody, right? If you can make exactly. working conditions better, that's going to make learning conditions better because guess what? Both those things happen in the same exact space. Exactly. And so you can't ignore one for the sake of the other. Mm-hmm. They, they go hand in hand. They do. And so that's, that's what I appreciate, appreciate about you as the, the SMEA president as well is you do have such dedication to this, to this profession and to our members. And I know you're always there to respond, whether you're there in a text or you're in a meeting with a principal <laughs> somewhere showing up at a site. Or, and that's why I think, um, and I, I don't want to get into the weeds here, I guess, but that's why I think you should be at 100% release time. That's one of the battles we've been fighting is to get um, Jose here full president release time so you can be working for the members, because you know we're in a time right now when districts and lawmakers and Supreme Court, so unions, particularly the public um, sector unions, are really under threat mm-hmm. on all fronts right now. And um, so I appreciate all the energy that you put into it and the dedication that you put into it. And uh, you've really been moving into technology, I think, is which I think is awesome. Like, make you recently put out a video where you were uh, comparing the districts and uh, our associations proposals and you were using like youtube and all these programs these websites i don't know to present information clearly to our members so they know what's going on yeah i appreciate that you know it's it's important that i know you can never meet everybody's needs but at the end of the day which I, by the way i hate that phrase right <laughs> end of the day end of the day i have to be able to you know look my board members in the eyes and them me and feel like we've done everything we could mm-hmm. up to that point and try and do more the next day. And right. whether that's communication with our members, whether it's, you know, you know, getting them to engaging them, whatever it is. And so I, I feel like, you know, some days when I fail, I try to do better the next day. And some days when I think that things are pretty successful, I, I try to build on that. Mm-hmm. As the, as the SMEA president, what are, what are some challenges that you see coming that we need to be aware of? So you've been doing this for what? This is your sixth year. This is being in my fifth year. Fifth, oh yeah. my gosh! Yeah, Isn't that crazy? five years. <laughs> Holy smokes! That's crazy. I know. Now I know why Obama's here. We're all great. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, <laughs> what? So, what are, what are some challenges that are that are facing us? So we can talk about. Janice versus Ask Me. Please do. All right. So that's a big one. Janice versus Ask Me. Okay. So what does Ask Me say? Ask Me. Ask Me is the American... Oh, no. Sorry. The Association of State, County, and Municipal Employees. Mm -hmm. Right? So think about state, county, municipal employees. They have their big association. Right? So they work in your town. They work for the state of wherever you work Mm -hmm. or the municipalities in which you live. Um, it is a national uh, organization, and so there are uh, regional chapters, right? Right, right? And so the ASME chapter uh, that's involved in the Janus case is Chapter 31, Regional Section 31, right? So it's Janus versus ASME 31. And this is an interesting case because, interesting in the sense that it's not a standalone issue. It, mm-hmm. it has some history to it, right? Right. And then most folks will tell you, well, it goes back to uh, Free Ricks versus CTA, which was last year, and that ended in a 4-4 decision when um, um, Judge uh, Scalia, Scalia died. died. Um, so, you know, when you are in a job that you have until you're dead, right. and then you die, <laughs> right. there's not 
a substitute to come in and take your spot. So that work just kind of stopped, which is really an interesting dynamic if you think about it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so when they say you, you have this job till death and then you actually die. It's kind of like marriage, till it's, death do you yeah, part. It's, it's, it was interesting, right? But anyway, so Janice versus Ask Me actually goes back even further from that, right? So um, you can go back to the uh, Harris versus Quinn, but if you can go back even further, right, and you look at things like uh, Bood versus Detroit Board of Education, which mm-hmm. Harris and Friedrichs and now Janice are kind of all based on, most people go back there. But you really have right. to go back even a little further than that, right? So go back to like um, the machinist versus street or the uh, is it the railway employees versus Hanson. And these were cases, both of these were public sector unions, I'm sorry, private sector unions, right, the railway and the machinist. So they are not public employees. They don't work for a county or a city or a state or a school district. But uh, they had something called fair share, right? And fair share had been established as a way of essentially keeping union peace. So this was a big issue back in the day, right? Mm -hmm. Unions not getting out of control. And so essentially what was said was that if you belong to a local union, in this case it was the machinists or the railway employees, that even if you didn't want to be part of that union, you said, hey, no, that's not for me. It's not what I believe in for whatever reason. You were not forced to be a member of the union, but you were required to pay your fair share, to participate in covering the costs of of the work that the union did on behalf of its members. Because salary negotiations. Exactly. Salary negotiations, working conditions. Think about things like railway employees and machinists. Working conditions is huge, right? Right, right. And so you, what you don't want is some employees benefiting from those, from those negotiations and others not. What the government didn't want is for there to be multiple competing unions within an industry so that the employers having to deal with all these different unions, Mm -hmm. right, essentially negotiating the same types of things but multiple times, and then having to differentiate between those employees, right? Right. Joe over here works under contract A, but Billy over there works under contract B, and, you know, that's just crazy. And so you want to have this kind of uniformity, right? So it was for the greater good. Definitely. And then we go from from uh, Street and, and Hanson to Abood Detroit versus the Detroit Board of Education. So now it's public, mm-hmm. right? This is a public school district. And what's great about this is that they kind of use the Hanson and the Street decisions to help with the Abood, saying, "Well, no, you have to all be part of this because you know it's it's a, you're public." And and, mm-hmm. and the argument was against it was well, but it, it infringes on my free speech rights, right? right? That. I don't agree with what the union says, but because I'm forced to be part of the union, then the union is speaking for me. And that's what Janice is saying now. That's Janice. That's what Friedrich was saying. And really, that's a kind of a false argument because nobody is forced to be part of a union. Mm-hmm. Every union member, even t- t- till today, has the option of not being a member of their local. Nobody requires right. you to participate. What you are required to do is to pay your fair share of the cost for the benefits of, 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 of the outcomes the association produces for its members. Right. Again, salary negotiations, working conditions, um, defending you in grievances and things like that, right? So right. Uh, so that's, that's super important. And I'm just going to read it. It says, um, so what justifies the agency fee in the Abood context is the fact that the state 
compels the union to promote and protect the interests of non-members, right, those folks who don't pay their fair share, mm-hmm. in negotiating and administering a collective bargaining agreement, that's our contracts, right. representing the interests of the employees and settlement disputes, right? So if I have a problem mm-hmm. with my employer and I have a dispute or I have a grievance that I'm processing, my association, the union, mm-hmm. is mandated, right, to... To back me up on all those things, right. even though I don't want to be part of the union. So the fair share was really about that. Mm-hmm. Pay your fair share. You can get your fair share of benefits from being part of the association. And um, so that that was, I think, really important, right? And so, you know, the court's decision in Naboo that these there was some public teachers in Detroit who were saying, well, you know, we don't we think it infringes on our on our on our First Amendment rights because I'm working for a private company. They're mm-hmm. selling goods or services. They're making money, right. right? They're paying me those dollars, and I'm sending some to my union. Those two things are separate. But if I work for a public entity, like mm-hmm. a school district, right. their money comes from public dollars, the government, right. and then I take those government dollars that I'm being paid with, and I take some of those, and I pay my union, mm-hmm. and my union negotiates against the district, mm-hmm. which is... A public organization, essentially, it's it's um, it's all a a free speech issue because it's advocating against the government for things they may not be uh-huh. right on board with without my consent. But see, so is that really political? <laughs> is that political it's crazy speech? Though, right? Though? I don't I don't see where that's political speech. So if the negotiations team goes in against the district and says, look. You know, our wages aren't consistent with um, COLA or, you know, our health costs increased. So you guys need to kick in some more or, hey, you know, our class sizes are exploding. Yeah. Are those political issues or are those just day to day? So the argument is that it's all inherently political because it has to do with public sector work and public dollars. Mm-hmm. Right. So so then Friedrichs comes along. Right. Friedrichs is out of California. Friedrichs versus CTA. Same argument. Public school teacher, infringes on my, my, my rights, mm-hmm. uh, and and then we that ends up we know Justice Scalia dying a four four that went went back to the lower court who had already decided in favor of CTA and so that's what stands with that decision mm-hmm. and now we're at Janus versus Aspen thirty one right right and it's just it's just another version of what's already been going on mm-hmm. and we have to remember who who brings these cases to the courts. We're talking about Janice. Janice is... He's a guy. Mark Janice. He's a dude. Yeah. He works in public health in Illinois. He's not like a rich and famous guy. Doesn't want to be part of the union. Totally get that. Right. Has a belief in his head that union speech is, is infringing on his right to free speech. Whatever. Right? right. But to get a case to the Supreme Court, you have to have somebody backing you up. Mm-hmm. And that's where the big dollars come on the, the these big right to work organizations out of Illinois. We're putting a big bucks to um, to really try and destroy public sector unions, mm-hmm. and, and that's really what it comes down to: breaking the public sector unions so that there will be more money available in the public coffers for their projects and for their special interests and their special needs, whether it's tax breaks for the rich or it's, you know, whatever it happens to be. And it's really all about free market taking advantage of 
some of the loopholes that exist in the system. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and there's people who argue this. Oh, well, you know, unions, they're the big backers of Democratic candidates. They, they dump a lot of money into the... Yeah, they yeah. say that, yeah. And it's somewhat true. Somewhat. But the answer is, who else will do it? Mm-hmm. If CTA, the California Teachers Association, doesn't dump money into races or into propositions in our state that are good for students, right? who's going to do it? Because somebody is already against that, mm-hmm. right? And that's a huge problem is there's no other large organization out there that advocates for students in schools and teachers. None. Right. PTA, they have some money but not much. No, no. Um, um, CASBA, the, the, the school board association, no. Mm-hmm. Right. They have their lobbyists but they're not engaged in the community. They're not running right. you know, campaigns. Uh, um, the uh, um, AIMS, which is the, the Association for Administrators, mm-hmm. nothing. no, nothing. And so who's left? We are. We are. Because individual parents aren't going to do it. They don't have the money or the, or the means or the energy or, or even the right. wherewithal to, to run a campaign that promotes public education, even though they know it's the right thing. So they really, really, really rely on public sector unions like CTA mm-hmm. to put up the money, run these campaigns, get people involved, get their members involved in these campaigns, because right. ultimately they work for better public education. And Prop 30... Is a really good example of that, right? It is tons yeah. of, of not new money, bringing back old money that was right. taken away from public education and backfilling it in to try and get our students and our classrooms to a place where California is not last again right. in funding again. for students. But see, that's what that's what drives me crazy is the idea that somehow all the unions are so evil for you know spending <laughs> money on campaigns, but then. No one stops to ask the question, well, who else is donating money to campaigns or, the, mm-hmm. or to these other, uh, these other groups? Well, clearly, they're corporations. Clearly, they're these right-to-work groups or these ideological Super rich people. Not just packs, corporations, right? Super packs. Super rich people. Exactly. And so when you take out teachers or you take out public service unions like the CTA or AFSCME, what you're saying is we're going to deny the average person's voice in the process because they belong to a union. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So if I'm a teacher and I belong to the CTA and CTA has political muscle, it has money, why can't my organization contribute money for these issues or to campaign for candidates or what have you when a corporation will drop billions or a rich person, or mm-hmm. a pack, or a super pack, super, will drop tons of money. So it's imbalanced. If you take out the teacher's voice, or the nurse's voice, or the service employee's union's voice, all these other public service unions, you take their voice out, mm-hmm. then it's going to be lopsided. And I think that's the goal of Janice and a lot of these right-to-work um, movements, so-called movements, is to deny average people who have you know, middle-class jobs a voice in the process. Yeah, and you and I both know, right, that middle class was essentially built through unionism. Totally. Um, you know, you look at post-World War II and and really the, the buildup of unionization in America, and we, you talked about this before, General Motors was the largest unionized, you know, organization in the United States at the time. And, and there was a reason for that, right? They were creating... You know, but they didn't have competition from the Japanese for cars or the Germans, really. So they were kind of a monopoly. But the point is that they were building something that people wanted, Mm -hmm. and they were making a good profit doing it. 
And with their unions, they were able to provide middle-class living conditions for their employees, that they were making a wage that made sense. Um, and and that's really all that union workers, most union workers want, right? Union workers are not always like you and I. Mm-hmm. Right? There are a lot of trades folks and that kind of stuff. But, you know, lawyers, essentially, because they belong to bar associations, sure. right? Um, and, and so, you know, professional athletes, we, we hear it all the time, right, about their, their unions and, mm-hmm. you know, when they have issues, they go on strike. What does union say about that when they're taking a knee and on and on and on, right? So they have actors, associations. writers. Right, the Actors Guild Association, the Writers Association. Yeah, exactly. We know what happened several years ago when those guys went on strike. Oh, yeah. A lot of game shows, a lot of reality TV, right? No, exactly. <laughs> so, you know, with with, uh, with Janice versus um, Ask Me, it's the National Right to Work Foundation, which is really backing Janice. Mm-hmm. Um they actually went in and were able to kind of take over uh, as the group that was mm-hmm. uh, defending Janice in this case. And they're a group that's backed by big dollars. And it's interesting if you think about it, California Teachers Association, and I keep referring to that because that's us. Right? That's us. Yeah. SMEA is part of CTA. 300,000 plus members. So it's not a small group of people with a lot of money. It's a lot of people with a little bit of money each mm-hmm. all pulling their dollars together um, and then using the, the strength and the weight of that, right, 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 to move forward. But you have organizations like the National Right to Work Foundation, which is out of Illinois, right? It's corporations and billionaires. It's a small group of people with a lot of money each pulling their resources mm-hmm. to to go after public sector employees and to weaken unions in a way that um, that's going to be detrimental to the middle class. Right, but then what's the quality of life like Boom, for that's those it right employees? There. Exactly, because those people live in communities and they shop in stores and they drive on streets and mm-hmm. their kids go to our schools. And as their quality of life decreases, mm-hmm. then the quality of our society decreases. And I think that's what gets lost in all this. You know, we, we, we think about, oh, well, you know, these labor unions, you know, their their grubby hands are on all this money, <laughs> you know, and they're out there promoting all these liberal issues and promoting liberal or democratic candidates. Well, the union, I don't think, is promoting necessarily liberal policies. They're not promoting democratic candidates. What they're doing is they're saying, who out there? What policy out there? is promoting the best interest of our students. Who's promoting the best interest of our teachers? Mm-hmm. And that's where they direct their money. And it just so happens that it's often the Democratic candidates. And, and I think locally there was a candidate, Jordan Cunningham. Mm-hmm. Yep. And the CT endorsed him. And as, a, as far as I know, he's a Republican. Mm-hmm. Is he not? It was, it was more about what does he stand for. Mm-hmm. And I always think it's funny when folks point at people like CTA and call them special interest groups. Right. Because every group is special interest. No group is all interest. Right. <laughs> there is no all That's interest. not a theme. I mean, right. it really isn't. It's just not a theme. Every group has a special interest. Our special interest mm-hmm. is education, right? right? You and I and the, and the associations that, that, we're, that we're connected to. Mm-hmm. Um, more specifically, the people who work in, 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 in public education and the students who attend public schools. Mm-hmm. That's my special interest. Mm-hmm. And I don't apologize to, for that to anybody, no. and if they don't like it, that's they can you know that's too bad for them. Yeah, they can take they, yeah. they can take a long walk short <laughs> here, right? Exactly, because you can't tell me that 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 is a special interest that I shouldn't have. You know, but see, that's the thing like special interest. It kind of impugns what it means to be a teacher. Yes. I'm sorry, education is not a quote unquote special interest. Education mm-hmm. impacts every sector of our economy, mm-hmm. and it, it impacts every. Um, corner 
of our society and impacts every community. Right. You know, it, so that person who's flipping burgers at McDonald's, guess what? He's a product of public education. Just like that person who, you know, they might be working at a bank somewhere. And, you know, they're, they're driving a fancy car living in a nice house. Yeah. Do you go to public schools? I went to public, all the way public schools all the way through. Okay. Your parents college graduates? No. My, my father, I don't even think, finished high school. Okay. Same with me. Right, my mom did some 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 college work. She's super smart, but never got her bachelor's degree. I don't think my dad ever finished high school. Right, went to public universities. Went to UCSB. All right, and I went to Cal, 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 Cal Poly. Then we both started at junior colleges in their community. Mm-hmm. Right, so public education all the way down the line. Right. We went from statistically a place where we really shouldn't be where we are. Right, right, right. Have mm-hmm. we just followed the path in which we were born into? Exactly. Right, but because. Of public education and those teachers who were mm-hmm. all union members, exactly. right? And in our day, hopefully, they were making a living wage. They weren't working two or three jobs to pay a mortgage or to you know put food on the table. And, and we were able to go public elementaries through public high schools into public junior colleges into public universities. And now we're teaching at public schools. Exactly. And so we benefit from that. And we could have just as easily, probably more you than me, decide, <laughs> hey, you know what? I'm not going to go back to a public school. Why would I do that? I ain't got a college degree now. I'm going to go do something awesome. Mm-hmm. That's going to pay me a ton of money. People are going to kiss my ring every day. I'm going to do that, right? <laughs> right, right. And, and you easily could have. There are lots of opportunities out there for energetic, bright people with, who are well-educated, who are willing to work hard. Right. But we didn't. When you pursue, <laughs> we went to public education. When you pursue teaching, especially in public education, you are acknowledging, I'm going into... A profession where I am going to be making a daily sacrifice. Mm-hmm. I know that I will make less money on average than someone with the same level of, level of education that I have. And it's not because I want the money. You know, I, I, I want to have a livable wage, of course, but it's because I look at what I do as a service. Yes, yes. But you still want to have, be acknowledged for the service that you provide and be able to, again, live that middle class lifestyle. Not mm-hmm. upper class, not high end, not one percenters, but just, yeah. you know, own a home in the community in which I work and live. You know, exactly. I don't um, want to make it rain. I don't want to be like a baller. <laughs> I, just I, want to, I just want to live my life. You don't want like a driver to bring you to work to school every day. In my, exactly. <laughs> on my 40 And, and your own personal chef walks in. No, it's lunchtime. I got yeah. my guy here. He's going to whip me up something. Thank fancy. you, Wolfgang. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Rest you go eat your government lunches. I'm, this guy's going to whip me up something sweet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, so we're not looking for that. We're just looking to be able to raise our families in, in a home that we own, in a community that we care about, you know, maybe take a decent vacation every now and then, and just live a, a, a middle-class lifestyle that's consistent with the time, the effort, the energy that we put in. Not more, not less than, 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 is, than is equivalent to, you know, everything we've done to get to that point, right? Right. And we know a lot of our coworkers with graduate degrees, masters, some even with doctor degrees, teaching junior high, mm-hmm. right? Um, and or teaching elementary or kinder. Exactly. And these people are highly educated, highly skilled, could go out into the regular workforce, the public workforce, I'm sorry, the private workforce, and find amazing careers that'll be maybe somewhat as rewarding as teaching, but will not have the type of impact that, that they have every year. And I... That's totally true. And I, I, I look at our own district, and I love the people in our district. I love the teachers and the people who work in the district office. When I talk to them one-on-one, mm-hmm. I won't name names, but when I talk to them one-on-one, <laughs> I actually like them. But then it's, it's like collectively they have this attitude of, well, 
you know, you should work more hours. You should put in more work. You should put in more effort. Oh, yeah, and we're not going to give you any more money. And I think that's just... I just look at that as so disrespectful because mm-hmm. I have a life, you know, and I'm not living, you know, high on the hog. No? No, I wish I were. I wish you were, too. I know. I'm driving my, my Toyota Yaris and... Uh, <laughs> I'm not a baller. <laughs> they still make that. <laughs> and I have, okay, I have the business class. Oh, so not baller. <laughs> but it's not even electric. Everything is manual. Like nothing is electric in that car. It's retro. It's exactly <laughs> retro. 2012. So you know what I mean? Like it's like I I I just want to be paid a wage that's consistent with my level of effort. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah, I'm working sometimes 12 hours a day. Yeah, easily. And I go home. I'm with my wife on the couch. We're watching Real Housewives of New Jersey or what have you. And I'm grading papers. Yeah. You know? So it's not like I, when I, you know, most jobs is like you clock out, you go home, done. Mm. Our job, you carry it with you. And then it, it, takes, it takes a toll. You're never not a teacher. Exactly. Once you become a teacher. It's 20 It's who you are. Seven. Yeah, it is. And you're absolutely right. You live in the community that you work in, mm-hmm. and that's just that's part of the gig. And then you feel like an asshole when you forget the kid's name. <laughs> well, you know, that's where Buddy and Princess comes in to play. Hey, guys. What's up, Buddy? Princess? Long time to see. Yeah. yeah. You know, but you, you act as if they're your long-lost pal. Exactly. Like they still owe you money for something. Exactly. I haven't forgotten. <laughs> I haven't forgotten. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> and that's the beauty of it because they they just get such a kick out of that. You know, they you do. walk into Target and they see you and they're like, and you can see mm-hmm. them over there looking at yeah. you, looking at you, and then they're... Yeah, they're standing in front of Tide Pods. You're right. Like, Don't eat those. <laughs> <laughs> but it is, it's, it's, it's neat. It's really, you know, one of the, one of the, the great benefits of being a public educator uh, is that you interact with those kids outside of the school setting, and it's it's just another level, right, for them of who you are as a person and what you can bring to the classroom. You know, they look in your cart and you go, oh, yeah, you know, we like Twinkies, too, at my house. Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay, no, these Twinkies aren't for me, honey. <laughs> They're for a friend. <laughs> well, I don't eat those. <laughs> but, you know, it's just, it just connects you that much in another way to those kids and to their families. Totally Say hi to the parents, you know, mm-hmm. and me, you know, for, despite the fact that my name is Jose, mm-hmm. I didn't grow up speaking Spanish. And so Likewise. Spanish is definitely a second, second, second language. I, I can muddle through things with my students and their parents, but just to be able to interact with them in public, mm-hmm. say hello to the parents in Spanish, how you doing, you're enjoying your weekend. You know, I can, I can do that. Right. Um, you feel like, you know, I'm making connections to folks who, who are part of my life because their child's in my room, mm-hmm. but, but now they're kind of part of my life because we live in the same space. That's the key right there. We are, we are public figures mm-hmm. for the rest of our lives. Yeah. You know, and when I, when I go to, when I go to the, when I go to the mall, I'll go watch a movie. I'm, I'm holding my wife's hand, or I'll I'll give her a little smooch or whatever. Ah, oh, a little PDA, a little PDA. Nice. And what? I look over, and there's right? little one cracking up. There, ah. he's got a cell phone now, taking a picture of you on Snapchat. Yeah. So I mean, yeah. we have to be. Or honest. that ticket taker was in your eighth grade class, or your seventh grade class, and right that kind of thing is crazy. Exactly. Too. It's it's such a rewarding profession. It really is. 
Yes. And yes. but then we should also be rewarded. I should have be rewarded. The compensated for our profession. Yes. And the time and energy it takes. Because right. I go home and I'm exhausted. I just crash. And my wife and my I've told my brother that before. My my brother is a truck driver. He's like, Why are you why are you tired? I drove a truck all day. Well, like it's emotionally and mentally taxing. <laughs> so funny funny true story. My first year so I, teaching was not my first profession. Mm-hmm. So I had a career before I came into teaching. So I start teaching, and I think I think I know what a long, hard day is like. I know what it's like in the past to work 24, 48 hours straight without sleep, you know, traveling a lot. I mean, I, that was, I was used to that, and I thought, well, that was hard. Mm-hmm. My first year of teaching, third grade at Bruce, 20 to 1, only 20 kids in my room. I would get in my car at lunch, drive down the street under a tree, and take a nap. Every day. <laughs> every day. Oh, my God. And hope to Jesus that I got up in time to get back every day. Every day for the first six months, I would take a nap during my lunch time. You know, I probably have like a little snack bar next to me that I would woof down real quick. Or but it was I was exhausted, and I was having just a great time. But it was physically exhausting, and I was not prepared for that. So, mm. your brother-in-law, the truck driver, my brother, yeah, brother, no idea, no idea. He just no sit down all day. He does. Just saying. But if we're going to talk about what looks easy, you sit in your ass. I'm sure all his day. job is like. Gruelingly difficult. I don't want that job. No, neither do I. But uh, he didn't. He doesn't want mine. <laughs> no. Um, it, it's it's just it's you you have to pace yourself or else you you just burn out. Which is I think why I, I get why the, the turnover for new teachers is so great in the first five years. Right. right? That's a that attrition rate and, and some of it has to do with how they're treated. Some of it has to do with um, lack of support. But mm-hmm. a lot of it has to do with just just density of the work that you're doing totally. and how demanding it is. And they just they just were not prepared for that. And and. I talked to somebody recently. They said, oh, but you guys, you know, you only work like nine or ten months of the year. You don't realize that I'm working a full year in that <laughs> nine or ten months. Yeah, so right. you working way more than you might think in that time. It's oh, compressed. Yeah. And then when you're off, you're still thinking about the work. Mm-hmm. Sorry, let me go back to you. You said something before about, you know, people like downtown and individually they seem like great folks and they're easy to talk to and they seem reasonable. But then collectively there's this idea that, they don't support the classroom teacher the way you would hope that they would, right? Right. So my undergraduate is actually in psychology. Oh, good. <clears throat> and I really yeah. focused on the dynamics of groups. So I had a concentration. And so I was really fascinated by the whole concept of group think. So do you, do you know what group think is? Is that kind of like the bandwagon concept where everyone just kind of thinks the <clears throat> same thing? It's a, a bit of that. So bandwagon is essentially when there is a core set of ideas and folks, rather than, than fight that, they simply just jump on the bandwagon. Like, yeah. They don't really think about it so much. They just go, well, it's easier to go with the flow than it is to resist, right? Yeah. Group think, though, is <clears throat> when folks work so collectively, so in so much in isolation, that they essentially begin to think the same way because um, there's no outside influences right. right, providing them with alternative bits of information. So in absence, in the absence of an alternative bit of information, I'm going to go with the information that it, that's presented to me. Right. And so when you're in a school setting, you, you're getting input from, you know, 30, 35 kids every day. If you're a junior high teacher, batches of 30, 35 kids every right. day. Your staff, your administrators, your support personnel. There's a lot of folks who are parents. I mean, there's a lot of people who are providing you with input mm-hmm. and perspective. It's much easier to have the ability to move through that, right, and think, right. oh, okay, I can kind of put myself in those shoes over here or those shoes over there to see the different perspectives. But when you get into an environment where most of that is gone, mm-hmm. Right, and everybody kind of in the space is isolated. Right, right. Group thing kind of takes over in one building because there's not 
influence of other ways of thinking. Right. And not that you should be influenced, but you should at least be able to have access to other ways of thinking to determine whether or not, hey, you know what? That over there totally makes sense. This thing we're doing, this is a pile this of crap, right? BS, I can't yeah. believe you're doing this. Because <laughs> look at that over there. It's awesome. That's way better. Yeah. Um, but if you, don't, if you never get to see that over there, mm-hmm. all you see is what's in front of you. You think, how awesome this is. Right. Hey, geniuses. Is somebody somebody take my picture. This is how awesome this is. <laughs> exactly. um, and so that's where groupthink comes in. And mm-hmm. that's a very common phenomenon. Yeah. And, and I see that happening when folks um, are disconnected from the day-to-day. And I got to tell you, there's some people in our union who would say the same thing about me. Right? I'm disconnected from – I'm out of the classroom half the time. But that's enough to be more about – the district's point of view or a um, disconnected point of view from the day-to-day of the tech classroom teacher. But see, I think <clears throat> just to, in your, in, to defend you. And thank you. Yeah. Oh, well, well, I want you to say it, then I'll thank you. <laughs> see if there's a thank you in there. <laughs> to see if it's worthwhile. <laughs> but I think you encounter so many members who are um, on the receiving end of some kind of injury. Mm-hmm. And you're at all the sites <clears throat> and you talk to principals and you talk to members, you get emails you get texts. You're constantly getting, I guess, that external stimulus from mm-hmm. other people to where I don't know that you could be kind of isolated in that bubble. Well, at least that's my point of view. And you, yeah, right. That's the way you counteract that is you find ways to communicate and to connect yourself with what's happening. So I'm not in the classroom every single day, all day, right, half day. So I have to find other ways to connect to the classroom. Mm-hmm. And that's through members, through talking with administrators, Right, dealing with the district at the district level, and really kind of get an idea of what are they selling, who's exactly. buying it, and thank you. Should I buy it? Right. Should I repackage it? Should I, you know, you know, boycott it? What should I do with whatever it is that's coming that direction? And it really gives me actually more perspectives than I normally would have because now I have all these different sites. You know, my community at my school is different from your community at your school. Mm-hmm. And even though we have similar student populations and our parents are fairly similar and we have the same curriculum, blah, 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 the reality is the humans that you deal with are not the same humans that I deal with. Right. So just by design, it's going to be a little bit different, you right? All these different perspectives. Exactly. Right. And so the work that I do now really allows me access to that. Mm-hmm. And so if Jose comes to me with a problem, right, you come to me and say, hey, A, B, C, D, now I have this you know, schema that I've develop because I've had these experiences and I can say, oh, look, I, in my head I have all these layers of experiences now right. and I can use those to help you with your problem. If I was just in my third grade class, classroom at my school all day, I have no idea how to deal with the thing that you're talking about. Mm-hmm. And that, that's a big difference because of the fair share, you know, and our ability to be able to encourage folks to participate in the union. Mm-hmm. We can do these things. But could you imagine if Janice V. Asme goes through and Janice wins and now fair share is no longer the law of the land for the 22 states that have it? Mm-hmm. And we start to lose members. And so that at your school site, your 40 teachers at your site, some of them are, are association members and some of them are not. And right. not in the sense that they're just fair share who don't agree with the union. Right. They're not even contributing Nothing. to the function. But yet they come in and they want to you know, negotiate a different bell schedule or prep schedule. Mm-hmm. Right. We as an association have the responsibility to not only provide them with the benefits of the negotiated contract, but also to, you know, 
back them up in grievances, to support mm-hmm. them contractually, I mean, all these things, right? Definitely. So I have two different groups of folks who are both vying for the same thing, some kind of a schedule that makes the most sense for students and for staff and for learning. One is contributing to the association and helping to pay for the release time so I can come and help you. Mm-hmm. The other group is not at all. Nothing. But I'm still there helping them. Because required to Because I'm law. required to by law. Because the law says that that's my responsibility, right? Right. Which doesn't make sense to me. Well, this part doesn't make sense to me. Why go after fair share? Mm-hmm. Why not go after the compulsory laws that require associations to mm-hmm. have to work on behalf of all employees regardless of whether or not they're members, right? right? And Joel brought that up last Why not just say, hey, you know what? Not a member? Good luck. And Joel brought that up in the last episode. He said, you know, I wouldn't be, you know, this wouldn't bother me so much if we didn't have to represent those members who didn't pay fair share. And there's some truth in that. But I think at the same time, because we all are teachers, we want to make sure that all boats are lifted. Mm -hmm. And in a way, it's like, well, if you have some teachers in the same district who are able to negotiate higher wages and some who are not able to do that, and they're just, you know, I almost feel like it kind of brings down everyone's wages. Is that what's your perspective? No, you're absolutely right. It works to the detriment of everyone, mm-hmm. right? To have these different groups of folks, those who are um, actively contributing to their association through their time and their energy and their dollars, and those mm-hmm. who are not, right? right? But you still have to represent all of them equally. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a problem. It re- really is. And and how how do you run your organization when you have members who don't believe in what you do so much mm-hmm. that they won't put their money where their mouth is? Exactly. But when the sky falls, they want you to hold up an umbrella. Yeah. And the law says you have to hold up that umbrella. That's that you're required to do it. Mm-hmm. I mean, it that's a that's a crazy catch twenty two kind of a thing. It is. It just it just blows me away. You know, we look at Janice versus Ask Me, right? Mm. How many Janices really are there? I think it's a small number. I mean, it just takes one to bring a case forward, right? Billions of dollars. And I think Janice is actually... Part of three or five. There's that's just the the primary name. Oh, right? there's multiple. Yeah, I think cases, there's more than violence. one one person, but it's not many. It's like three or five people. Mm-hmm. But but they refer to it as Janice because that's the that's the first name on the on on the bill, right? right? So to speak. But uh, really, how many people are there who really believe that negotiating with a public entity management mm-hmm. is somehow inherently political and that it infringes on their right to free speech right. and that they are being essentially forced to take on the speech of the union. Like, right. I don't even know if it, how many people really think that far into it. Right. That's And to me, it's like, why would you think in that way to begin with? Yeah. Because it's going against your best interests. You know what? I, I don't agree that I should be able to negotiate a higher salary. Wouldn't you want this entity, the union, to negotiate for you a higher salary? Yeah, or even better working conditions. Or working hey, you conditions. Know what? I want a, a heater and air conditioner in my classroom because exactly. I have all these kids in there and it just makes sense. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, we want to make sure that our roofs are not going to leak or that we get a bathroom break every three hours or whatever it is, oh, right? Yeah. And so. <clears throat> Working conditions cover lots of things, and that's a big part of the contract. You know, the salary is one section, right? Right. Amongst multiple, one article amongst multiple articles, For right? Sure. And and to, to make the leap mm-hmm. that the negotiating of any of those elements within the contract is somehow tied to stepping on your rights of free speech because whoever is speaking to the negotiating process is is. 
I don't know, is speaking for you. Well, I guess they are speaking for you because you're a collective, right? You're, right. you're a bargaining unit. Mm-hmm. I'm calling you a unit for a reason, not because you're a tool. <laughs> right? well, I'm, it's a, a, I'm a tool. So. It's a bargaining unit, uh-huh. and you're part of that unit, right? But it doesn't right. mean you you can't go off and have your own free speech. It doesn't mean that it's... I don't know. And, and I, I keep saying it doesn't mean doesn't mean, but the reality most likely is that the Supreme Court mm-hmm. is going to say, oh, yeah, dummy, it does mean that. So that's what, that's not, okay. So let's talk about that then. The Supreme Court in the Friedrichs versus CTA mm-hmm. case came down 4-4 because Scalia kicked the bucket. Yes. Right? Yeah. God rest his soul. God rest his soul. But in this case, because of Trump's appoint, um, appointee, Neil Gorsuch, mm-hmm. it looks like very likely yeah. it'll be 5-4 in favor of Janice. In favor of Janice, So yeah. what do we do yeah. in the wake of that? G-Man's going to be, he's going to be the deciding vote. Mm-hmm. He's going to be, right? So we do what we do, mm-hmm. which is getting the word out to our members that being an active member of the association of your union right. is in your best interest because of, and then you kind of lay all that stuff, right? You know, it's going to be on local associations across the state to, to really engage those members. And, and if they're not used to doing that, communicating with them, um, holding forums with them, right. sending out newsletters, having a, a, a general membership me- meetings, um, doing whatever it is you do to engage. If you're not already doing that, mm-hmm. It's going to be tough because that's not your culture. Right. And it's going to be really easy for teacher XYZ to say, you know what? I don't really even see the union. I'm not sure what they do for me. Why do I want to continue to to contribute to something that I don't even really know what's going on? Right. right? They could have the best contract in the whole region. Mm-hmm. They could have the most amazing negotiators. But if they're not connected to those folks, somehow they're not going to see it. They're going to just right. think, well, this is just the way things are. And if this is just the way things are, pay is good and benefits are good and working conditions are good. Right. Why do I need to pay money in dues for that? So I'm just going to opt out. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's going to be to the detriment of those locals who don't start to engage their members in a way that makes right. sense to them, right? Right. And you know, you, I mean, we talk about this all the time. How do we engage our members, mm-hmm. right? And not just bugging them, but actively engage them in a way that makes sense to them right. and to provide them with the things that are of value to them, uh, whether it's sending them to conferences or it's bringing trainings here locally or it's putting out information in a way that, that's consumable, right? Right. And that's mm-hmm. like a big thing right there now. Like, how do people consume information? You're a younger person. How do you consume information? Well, through Facebook usually. <laughs> so... Smia has a Facebook page. Yeah. Check us out on Facebook. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but you could also use YouTube, or um, I've also set up an, an Instagram account. And then we have things like the YouTube. The YouTube. And the YouTube is all visual medium, mm-hmm. right? Which I love because I like that. And so making videos and putting them out to members, to me, is I like that because mm-hmm. I feel like that's my thing. Like, right. I totally get that, right? Mm-hmm. But then I'll get emails from members who say, well, can't you put that in writing? Okay, that that's funny you said that because I, <laughs> when I went to the uh, the issues conference mm-hmm. in Vegas a couple weeks ago, uh, I I went to the social media and organizing okay. session, and I thought, okay, good, this is perfect. Social media organizing, I'm all about this. Right? I go to it, it's terrible oh. because it's here's how you set up a Facebook page. Uh. Like. Ah, oh, I'm already doing this. It should have been at the end of whatever the title was. Should have been for dummies. For dummies, and everyone there is like, I, I, I'm my you not. The, the, the presenter spent 15 minutes on how you take a picture. You want to say? And were they riveted? 
Yes. And, <laughs> and, and she not only did she take a wow. show us how to take a picture, yeah, yeah. she made each one of us at the tables come up and take pictures. And like learn by doing, Jose. I learn by doing. Come on. Like, Hands on learning. Exactly. Like, Stop. I already know how to do this. Right. <laughs> it was for the people who are like, can you put that in writing? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't like watching things. I like to exactly. read stuff. And I'm like, I, I, I'm not joking. I got a message like that from a member. And I thought, you know, I actually, see, this is my problem. I, the next communication I put out after that one, which is just a little while ago, right. I actually put it out as a video and as written text. Both. Because yeah. I thought to myself, oh, I don't want anybody to be unhappy. Right. Even though it took me literally twice as long to put those communications together to get them out that one message made me feel like oh i have to i have to meet the needs of that one person Mm -hmm. not thinking to myself well how many needs did i meet right you have 850 members in the union yeah and that's the one message that i focused on the one that the person wasn't happy so i doubled my work load to meet the needs of one person and after the fact, I thought, you know, I, I'm not going to do that anymore. I can't. Good. I have to figure out how to communicate with as many people as possible mm-hmm. each time. Efficiency. And yeah, right. I can't, you know, I can't do the what is it the the seven different ways of learning, the different modalities. Yeah, right. right. Yeah, you know, I can't. I, I can't do like a kinesthetic and all. I can't do that. The tech, right? Yeah, I'm not exactly. going to do like an interpretive dance and a video and a text and, exactly. and braille. And I just can't do all those things. <laughs> I, I have to just figure out one way to communicate with everybody. Uh-huh. Um, and, and, and the videos were a good way of doing that. I think they're awesome. And you're using what a screencast com or something. What is it called? Uh, right? It's the bomb. Huh? Oh, my goodness. It's pro. Well, except for that ending. It was a little hot mess. But other than that. I, I thought it was still good. And yeah, it was it was awesome. And I think our members are going to respond well to that. So. Mm-hmm. And it gets the message across, and I, at least I explain what I want to explain. I'd rather do that. Wow. That works really well. And, you know, again, if and when Janice wins mm-hmm. and we lose fair share. Which seems likely. Which seems likely. Then as a local association, and all local associations and unions, public unions, will have to be engaging their members in a way that makes sense to those members. Right. So then we're going to have to do a better job engaging our members. Mm-hmm. One to one, we're gonna to have to give them the why. So, like the core reason why they should give a damn, yeah, about the union. Mm-hmm. Because so many of our members, and I encounter this at my own site, they look at the union as a service. Well, I pay my dues, so I expect you to do X, Y, Z. Instead of yeah. I belong to a community, yeah. I belong to a, a union, and I, I should participate in this um, collective for my own betterment, but also for the betterment of everyone who's part of this. And I think that's going to be a paradigm shift um, that we're going to have to make. Yes. Because that service model is really a byproduct of how that local union has managed itself. Your members, if your members consider you as a service model, providing a service to them, negotiations, grievance, whatever it is, mm-hmm. it's because you've created that as a union, mm-hmm. right? And it's going to be your responsibility to create something different right. where you are a collective and not a service model. Uh, and that's that's going to be tough for some folks, right? And I don't, I don't want to say that we've done that per se, but I think because we've been so successful in recent years, well, maybe not even successful per se, but just because we've had such a great relationship with the district, or at least a collaborative relationship with the district, to where now we're in a situation to where things aren't so great. Mm-hmm. We're at impasse right now. And then 
add to that Janice. And I think we're facing some apathy from people. Maybe not necessarily apathy, but a lack of engagement. And it, we're going to have to really work on that going forward. Yeah, and that, that just becomes our responsibility. Mm-hmm. We, can't, we cannot stand back and say, well, if those members want to be engaged, they should engage. Mm-hmm. Right? We, we have to the... say, yes. And are you going to get every rock in the road? No, right. It's going to be that percentage of members. <laughs> As we know. <laughs> you could be... <laughs> Every single day of the week, you could be with them, trying to convince them, trying to work through their issues, trying to ask them, you know, what can we do for you? How can the association be a benefit to you? And you're still not going to get them to come on board. Mm -hmm. Those are the people we're talking about, right? Mm -hmm. We're talking about those folks who would slip in and out of being engaged, slip in and out of being, you know, active participants in in the union and the process. And how do we keep them from slipping in and out? Because there's also going to be that group of folks who are going to be with you no matter what. Right, right. Your core, right? Think about like Trump, right? He has that core 35%. 35%. He could burn the White House down. <laughs> they would still be there. And they'd be like, 35%? Mm-hmm. He could shoot that proverbial person in the face on um, Times Square, and that 35% would be like, hey, that dude was asking for it. He's just making America right? great again. Right? right? <laughs> that one, yeah, exactly. So every organization has their core. Mm-hmm. And unions are no different. We have our core membership. Right. The, the difference between union, different unions around the state and around the country is what size is your core? Right. How well have you done over the years mm-hmm. to grow that base so that even when the shit hits the fan mm-hmm. and Janice goes through, they're still going to go, hey, you know what? I'm still with you because I see value in this. Right. I don't have to worry about convincing that 35, 40, 45, 50, 60% of my membership. Mm-hmm. I really have to work on the, the rest of them and make right. sure that we're engaging them and and, 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 and find out what their interests and their, what their needs are and what can we do as a, as a union mm-hmm. to make them um, part of the process and not – and as an outside person right. waiting to receive services, right? The service model you were talking yes. about. And and that's going to be difficult. You know, I think we have a pretty good core mm-hmm. in our association. Right. I think we're very fortunate that we've inherited a union with a very good core membership who mm-hmm. believe in, in what we do and how we do it. Um, but we'll see, right? Right. We've never had to test that. And I, You know what? And you said this earlier in passing, but I, I think it's really worth noting. We have what? 850 members in our union? 884. 884? Oh, we're almost 900. Yes, yes. Wow. Big league. Even better. So we have 884, <laughs> and out of that 884 members, one is what? An, a fee payer? One fee payer. One. One. That is amazing. And that one fee payer, no matter how you approach them, mm-hmm. That's their stance, mm-hmm. and they have a right to that stance. But they're contributing their fair share, fair share to the benefit of the negotiated contract and to the ability to be represented in the, in the face of a grievance mm-hmm. or, or, or administrative discipline. So they still have all those rights. Right. But even though they're just a fee, a fee payer. Just a fee, just a bit. So I, th- I think that does go, I think that does say that we're, our union is healthy going forward. It may state be. average is ten percent, so yeah, we're doing better than the state average. Definitely, because one out of eight eighty four is not ten percent. I don't know. What the, I'm not a math teacher, but I know it's that. not ten percent. I'm going to go as so far as to say it's not one percent. I'm going to go on the limb. <laughs> it's actually point zero zero one three one percent. That was going to be my third guess. Your third guess. Well, there you go. Point zero zero one one three one percent. 
So that's really good. So not too shabby. So so as we wind this conversation down to close this segment, what's what's one thing then that you want our listeners to know? Because I, I'm assuming the majority the I'm gonna say vagina. I'm assuming the majority. Of, <laughs> I have vagina on the mouth. I'm assuming the vagina. I'm assuming the vagina is waiting. <laughs> that's okay. Uh, what's your vagina so, assumption? Exactly. <laughs> That's terrible. <laughs> it's the beer. Um, oh, that's hilarious. So, the vast majority of our listeners aren't union members. You know, they're just people who are yeah. working their day to day job. What do you want the listeners who are, who are hearing us talking about all this? What do you want them to come away with? Awesome, great question. You mentioned this earlier. Be- earlier before, um, rising tides lift all boats. Yes, the unions have done that repeatedly throughout the history of this country, mm-hmm. that when unions are strong and the middle class is doing well, it lifts other industries that are not unionized. And so if you're working in an industry that's not unionized, mm-hmm. or maybe it is, but your particular sector is not unionized, you have to understand that when unions are strong, right, and when they have the support that they need and they're able to negotiate good quality contracts that allow folks to have you know, um, um, lifestyles where they have some dignity into, into the life that they live because the work that they do provides them that dignity, mm-hmm. then that lifts the boats across the tide in other industries. Mm-hmm. And so you, in, you directly benefit from the work of the union even when you're not unionized. And sure. the inverse is true. When those rides, when those tides start to fall, because the loss of unionism, because the, the, the attack on unions, it impacts everybody, and everybody loses. Whether a union, you're a union house or not, you lose out. So all boats. Yeah. So all boats are lifted. So if, if anybody's out there listening to this and they're not a union worker, but they work in an industry or a trade where there are um, unions, mm-hmm. uh, just understand that 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 you know unions are the tide that lifts all boats. And if you're in one of those boats, you benefit directly from the work that unions do. Um, and, And that's just a fact. This is the part of our show where we talk about something that we've read or we watched um, over the week that we would like to share with our listeners. So, again, Jose, you're the guest um, of our podcast this week. Well, guest slash um, substitute host. <laughs> yeah. um, what, what was something that you read or watched or listened to that you would like to share with our listeners? Okay. So, I... Wasn't sure about this part of the show, so I went back and listened to the previous podcast to get an idea. Mm -hmm. And it turns out you and Joel are all over the map. So, not not helpful at all. all. (laughs) Which is good, though, because... And in the end, I thought, well, good, I can do whatever I want. Yes. So, here's here's my music thing, right? There's a band that's been around since 2010. Mm -hmm. I just got into them about a year and a half ago. And... Obsessed is probably the wrong word <laughs> right, right. because it's like a junior high school girl word to use, but I'm going to use it anyway. Obsessed right. with them. Mm-hmm. And the band's called Baby Metal. 
Baby metal. Baby metal. Baby metal is a cross between heavy metal and K-pop. If you're not familiar with K-pop, K-pop is the Korean pop music. Yes. It actually encompasses like Taiwan and Japan, some of these other Asian countries. But my students are obsessed. Oh, BTS. Oh yeah, right. BTS, Seventeen, all these like big K-pop bands, yes. right? So baby metal is essentially the cross bleed between these two. It's out of Japan, mm-hmm. and it's a just a head banging crazy heavy metal with three young Japanese girls because wow. of Japan right. as the front singers. I mean, they are just cute as a button, but it's just a really interesting mix mm-hmm. of that sound, right. right? And they have a very much of a K-pop mentality, matching costumes, all choreographed dance moves, mm-hmm. but with this very black and red and kind of aggressive um, heavy metal vibe to them. So when you watch some wow. of their live show... Um, um, videos, mm-hmm. the production value is off the chart, right? Wow. I, I think back to like Kiss, right? Okay, yeah. It wasn't just about the costumes. I mean, it was the, the instruments, how they were designed and built, and it was the stage production, and the flames, the fire, and the backdrops. It was a show. It wasn't just music for the sake mm-hmm. of music, right? So Baby Metal, Baby amazing Metal. band. Oh my gosh, they're so much fun, right? So they have jams like um, Karate, which is one of my favorite. Uh, uh, Give me chocolate, uh, Mega Sui, the one, the one's a great little jam. And anyway, they have been around since 2010, but they're just getting better every year. So if anybody's got some free time on their hands, baby metal. Watch them on YouTube first. Because it's it's kind of a visual audio treat, right? Mm -hmm. You're going to be blown away. Um, And then the other thing was you, you and Joel talk about books a lot. Well, I don't yes. read books because I'm not a book person. <laughs> You're not a nerd. And I don't have to be a book person. <laughs> okay, right. But I do listen to things like podcasts. And so I turned Monique on, my wife, Monique. Ah! You turned I, your wife on. Anywho, to a podcast entitled Dirty John. Dirty, Dirty John. John was actually a series of stories out of the LA Times. <laughs> right. Turned into a podcast. And the great thing about the podcast is I think it's maybe five or six episodes is that it includes some of the real players. And it's essentially the story about this um, wealthy woman in the L.A. beach area who who meets this man of her dream. She's already gone through like four or five marriages. So, you know, Mm -hmm. she's a multi, you know. Yeah, the, a multi-marriage type person. Right. Meets this guy, just thinks he's amazing, and it turns out that he has this deep, dark, secret life that she knows nothing about. If he was gay, that would make the story easy. Oh my goodness. Yes. Right. And her adult children and start investigating this guy, and they find out all this crazy shit about this dude and his life, mm-hmm. and. Monique and I drove um, from Santa Maria to Palm Springs, mm-hmm. and we listened to it the whole... I actually listened to the first couple episodes. We listened to, like, the last three or four together, and when we got to where we were going, we we actually circled the block a couple times to get the last two minutes of it because she was just wow. so into it. But Dirty John, it's called Dirty John. You can go to um, latimes.com projects. You can, you can listen to it there, or you can find it on YouTube or other streaming services. But it's called Dirty John, and it is just amazing. It's going to blow you away. I'll check that out. Also, if you're looking for podcasts, you can <laughs> listen to Conversation on Tap. <laughs> 
<laughs> shameless plug. Insert shameless plug here. Well, we don't do advertising. So. <laughs> Wait, nothing to kick back from Costco and Firestone no. and Figaro Mountain and no, no, we, we should be every week. It's a new plug. We don't get any any money for that. <laughs> so for my um, my turn this week, I was watching a movie last night called Shape of Water. Oh, love that movie. I wasn't sure what to do this week. I haven't, I haven't really been, I've been so busy. I haven't mm-hmm. had time to listen or read or watch anything. But last night, we have, we have the Amazon Fire Stick. Okay. Okay. And my wife's like, I want to watch Shape of Water. And uh, it's directed by Benice, um, I need to help. <laughs> Not Benicio Del Toro. <laughs> Not Benicio. No, no. no, no. <laughs> that I would like to watch. It's <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't watch that movie. I totally would watch that. It was directed by Guillermo del Toro. Oh, that guy, Hellboy. That so Guillermo del Toro, he's famous <laughs> for doing um, Pen Slappers, and he also did Hellboy. Mm-hmm. Love Hellboy because I was all into the um, comics by Mike Mignola. Well, the movie stars Sally Hawkins, Michael Shannon, uh, Richard Jenkins, Octavia Spencer, yes. and Doug Jones. Mm-hmm. Doug Jones... Awesome. He plays the creature. But basically, it's a story of um, the cleaning woman named Eliza. And she cleans this secret facility. And the secret facility has gotten this creature called the Asset. You clean that lab, you get out. She deaf? Mute, sir. She can hear you. The thing we keep in there is an affront. And I should know, I dragged it all the way here. And um, she falls in love with the Asset. Eliza is mute, and obviously the creature can't speak English. But um, she starts to fall in love with the creature, mm-hmm. the asset. And she teaches the creature sign language. Now, for those listeners who don't know, I'm what's called a coda, child of a deaf adult. My mother is deaf. She was born deaf. Sign language was my first language. So I loved that aspect of the movie. So she and the creature oh, are Dude, I didn't even think it. about that. Oh my god, that's awesome! Like it's a whole they're layer for you that I didn't layer. have when I watched the movie. Yes, that's awesome. So she, oh, sorry, didn't even interrupt. That's no, of totally course. cool. Oh she my god, just communicate with the creature. Totally knew that about you. Him. Didn't put that together until you just there said you it right now. One of them, yeah, one of them is, is two. And then she finds out. So she's mute. She can't mm-hmm. speak, but she can hear. So she's not totally deaf, and she hears that they're going to kill the creature. So she puts together a plan to rescue the creature. And the movie proceeds from there. Um, Michael Shannon plays the, I guess, supervisor or whatever. Yeah. He is crazy. The creature bites off two of his fingers, and the doctors are able to reattach the two fingers. Oh, that's so gross. The whole, the whole, that whole yeah. thing is gross. They start to rot. It was you that found my fingers. There was mustard on them. I won't, I won't tell you what happens, but... Rosebud's a sled. Rosebud. <laughs> Rosebud. Basically, but the movie focuses, <laughs> the movie is set in the 1960s. So it focuses on um, prejudice, discrimination. Mm-hmm. And so civil rights is kind of a background. And you see instances, instances of the movie where they discriminate against black people. And um, Eliza's neighbor, he's an artist who's, um, who happens to be gay. And he faces discrimination from employers, from people he encounters at a, um, at a restaurant. And, of course, the creature itself faces discrimination because it's not a human. I would add to that women as second-class citizens. Yes, thank you. Totally. Because when 
They're just cleaning women. When things happen, yeah, I won't, I won't get into spoilers, but when things happen, uh, Michael Shannon's character just doesn't even think. No. Dismisses them. Totally. Well, you guys aren't guilty. No. He, in his head, he's imagining like a strike force, exactly. a Russian strike force. These women could, the clean women could not possibly have it. Anything, that's not even on the radar. Exactly. Because women are second class to him. And what I love about that scene is Eliza's, in sign language, says, you mm-hmm. and he's yeah. like what are you saying and octavia spencer's character is like she's saying you know thank you <laughs> <laughs> but what i love is that, that eliza is deaf the creature cannot communicate and yet they're the ones who communicate the most clearly in this mm-hmm. m- movie and they communicate in love and that's what the whole movie is about i think is about love you know overcoming prejudice overcoming discrimination finding love even in this movie where it's this weird bestiality almost. Um, <laughs> which is, I'm, which, I'm gonna go with not almost. Not almost, certainly. <laughs> but it's an amazing movie. I recommend it. It's clear why it's an Oscar Oscar um frontrunner. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Amazing movie. You saw it. I saw I saw it by myself actually. Yeah. That's how I roll. And what do you think? I thought it was the bomb. I was really just into it. The whole thing, the visuals. I love, you know, it's so difficult when you make a period piece to stick to the era, right? Yes. And they did a really good job of sticking to the era. Not just the costumes, but the vehicles and the the mentality of people and, you know, even the way that people spoke and that kind of stuff. It was just really a neat it's neat to see that, you know, because so many folks try and they just kind of blow it. Or they, they, they want special effects to take care of all the background buildings yes. and the vehicles instead of really putting effort into how people talk, how they interact with each other, right? Mm-hmm. You know, I, Channing Tatum, not going to buy him in a 1950s movie because he just no. doesn't sound right. And he, he doesn't have the ability to sound right, right. <laughs> for the era. Exactly. No matter how awesome the backdrops are, the costumes, the vehicles, the CGI, he's mm-hmm. still going to sound like a guy who doesn't belong. Right. So my wife and I were watching this, and we were just the whole time thinking, Michael Shannon is perfect for this movie. He's so quirky and ominous. Mm-hmm. And it turns out when I was looking at the movie more in depth that, that Guillermo del Toro had Michael Shannon in mind when he wrote oh, the character. Not, okay, perfect. So that worked out perfectly. So I recommend this movie highly to anyone um, who's looking for kind of like a deep movie. It was really deep. And you look at it, and it seems kind of weird, like, oh, I don't know, this is a deaf chick and this creature and all love. <laughs> but it's so deep. You the, totally get into it. Yeah, the themes are, are really rich, and the dialogue is amazing. Mm-hmm. The characters are, you know, they're they're definitely interesting and worth, um, yeah, getting to know. Totally agree. That's, that's mine for the week. So that's all for this week. Thank you so much for listening to our little humble podcast you could do us a huge huge favor by subscribing to our podcast on itunes um, or wherever you listen to podcasts and be sure please to rate our show and leave a review your rating will help others find this show and be sure to find us on facebook at conversation on tap and we're also on instagram thank you so much for listening and we'll see you guys next week say bye jose bye jose